place your advance order now on Amazon for the very first volume of the New Thinking Aloud Dialogue series, Is There Life After Death? Publication date is June 1st. Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today I am very pleased to bring to the New Thinking Aloud audience another conversation with my good friend James Tunney, based in Gothenburg, Sweden. James is an attorney, he is a poet, he is a painter, and a scholar. He is author of many books, including two dystopian novels, Blue Lies September and Ireland, I Don't Recognize Who She Is. In addition, he has written The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism. Empire of Scientism, The Dispiriting Conspiracy and Inevitable Tyranny of Scientocracy, Tech Bondage, Slavery of the Human Spirit, Human Entrance to Transhumanism, Machine Merger and the End of Humanity, and most recently, Plantation of the Automatons. Today, we will be exploring the life and work of the great film director, writer, and actor Orson Welles. As I've mentioned, James is in Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. It's a great pleasure to be with you once again. This, I think, is our 41st video conversation. Looking forward to the conversation, Jeffrey. We'll be talking about Orson Welles, who is regarded by many people as one of the greatest filmmakers ever, a, a genius. His film, Citizen Kane, is still regarded by many as, even though it, it was made as early as 1941, when he was, I think, 25 years old, the greatest film ever made. And the irony is that many young people today uh, who, who aren't as old as you, you and I may never have heard of him, don't know who he is at all. Uh, that's right. And uh, for me, Orson Welles is one of the great artists of the 20th century. So he is respected by people who love cinema. And he is regarded, as you said, as one of the great directors of all time. Uh, but he's also been uh, a great actor. And uh, his work in the theatre was very significant. And also, very, he was very important as a social commentator. He was a journalist as well. And he wrote, he wrote articles. Uh, and even the people who knew him in his popular work through television series uh, are not so interested in some of the great films that the cinema uh, cinema goers uh, love. But he did become uh, even, even a, a figure to be joked at, like other comedians like John Candy uh, used to, to make fun of, of, of Orson Welles and Robbie Coltrane, I think, in Britain. So he was regarded as a figure of of fun because of his, his, his size uh, later on. And there was a... There was an element of a simplification that people began to believe in, in the image as a kind of reductive uh, view of him. And they failed to see that this man's life represented a kind of great symphony, a great fugue with different themes of which the cinema was a central aspect, but not the only aspect. And it's, it's, there's many adults as well that, that have not looked uh, because of the popular conception of him at his great role and the great themes outside his his innovations in relation to radio and theater and film. His first movie, Citizen Kane, was first 
shown at the Academy Awards. It, it didn't win the award for greatest picture. It was actually booed when uh, it was presented. And I gather the reason is that it was basically a very harsh critique of one of the wealthiest, most powerful men in, in America, William Randolph Hearst a, at the time. And Hearst went to great lengths to try to suppress the movie. And, and in fact, I think one way of looking at Wells' career is is that he always was a, a a fighter against the follies and dangers of the establishment. Yes, he he the the film did win best screenplay, um, and and for a number of different reasons, it didn't win awards. But I mean, they they're disregarded in the historical analysis of the of the power uh, of of the film, and and the film was set in a context of. A historic struggle between the Rockefellers and William Randolph Hearst, and in, and, and this film uh, does attack uh, a figure which is very similar to w- William Randolph Hearst, and that was actually preempted by a book by Aldous Huxley in uh, 1939, which was on that uh, that, that subject. And then when uh, when Wells had come to Hollywood, he, there was a few possibilities in relation to making films because he had achieved great success before then and uh, this this theme worked for him because he was always interested in huge powerful figures in dark figures in faustian figures and in attacking william uh, randolph hearst he's attacking a system he's attacking a media system a media system that's associated with uh, international war and the in- inculcation and fomentation of, of war as well so uh, he, he, uh, there's a bit of irony in the sense that the Rockefellers were behind the scenes to some extent in their support of RKO, where, where the film came from, but they, they weren't exercising influence on, on, on the particular topic. Wells was always criticizing the abuse of power and criticizing the psychological accumulation of power and criticizing trusts and corporate control uh, and that that was a theme that he pursued throughout his life in attacking the assembly line production of of uh, cinema and in attacking just what corporations can do. Uh, the film was uh, eventually loved by a, a range of people who understood that this was a great innovation in cinema. In particular, I think the use of Greg Toland or, or the, the opportunity of the great cinematographer Greg Toland was very important. He was a, a fantastic, one of my favourite cinematographers who had worked on Wuthering Heights and he was an expert in creating moods with with the camera and in creating an atmosphere and, and a sense of using the device of pathetic fallacy, of, of having nature express moods and emotions and what adept in the, in the camera work that's, that's hard to, to get in, in, other, in other ways. And he had approached Orson Welles. This was an element of Welles' story, a kind of synchronicity, a kind of look that, 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 that happened throughout his, his lifetime. And the reason why, apparently, he approached Welles was he believed that Welles would have such an originality and a lack of knowledge of how the medium worked that he'd be able to innovate. And he knew from his the work that Wells had pursued, uh, particularly in New York, through the Federal Theatre uh, Project and, and on the stage, and his long history at that stage, uh, on the stage, that he would be able to add something to this context. But there, were, there, there are deeper themes in all his, his movies. It's, it's interesting that you talk about his long history since he was 25 years old at the time of uh, making Citizen Kane. But even before that, he was regarded as a great genius. I believe he co-founded with John Houseman the Mercury Theater of the Air, a radio theater program, I think goes back to 1938. He would have been about 23 years old at, at that time with the full backing of CBS. And one of the productions of that a radio theater for which uh, he's still famous, of course, is is his production of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Yes, he he's he's in the uh, Mercury Theater, which is on the stage, but it's also on radio. 
1938 is the famous War of the Worlds broadcast, where, whereby people believed, or some people believed, that there was actually a Martian uh, landing on the Earth, an attack on the Earth, but they had used H.G. Wells' story from War of the Worlds. But what's interesting is that he was known before then, and a, a lot of people think that it was only because of that that he became famous, but he was on the cover of Time magazine before then because of his work with the Mercury Theatre. And the Mercury Theatre came about around 1937 with John Houseman, as you said, who, who later appeared in, in films like The Paper Chase, which many law students will have uh, have looked at. And this came out or came after the Federal uh, Theatre Project. And in the Federal Theatre Project, he had, uh, as a young man, he, he's 20 when he's directing a play. With, and, and one particular play that he directs is the Voodoo Macbeth, as it's called whereby he takes Shakespeare, who is a great love of his, and he transforms it into a Haitian contact and he, a context and uses a total, totally African-American casts, which, and it toured the country for a while. It was a great success. There was thousands of people uh, came to see it. And this showed that he was a great innovator. But his career had started long before that. There is some dispute when it started, for there is some arguments that he was actually on the stage as a three-year-old in, in an opera, <laughs> uh, and uh, although there's some suggestions that he was even too heavy for the soprano at that stage, but uh, he he went to he's from Kenosha in Wisconsin and kind of in your your kind of area, and he he eventually goes uh, to Illinois to Woodstock to a, a school uh, uh, Todd school, and this this was seen to be kind of innovative, and it was innovative. It was very innovative. So he's there when he's 11, and at that stage he's producing, he's producing plays already. So, and, and he begins to write plays, and he begins to write a play that called Bright Lucifer, uh, exploring the Luciferian connection, another element that links us with Steiner perhaps. And uh, he, he puts on and explores the medium. They have also radio equipment there in Woodstock, Illinois, and this is Woodstock, Illinois was, was in the film. Uh, Groundhog Day. Uh, it's 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 not far over the border in uh, from from Wisconsin, and he regarded Woodstock as as his home in many senses because his mother died and his father died uh, a few years later, uh, and he spent quite a bit of time in Woodstock, and he was successful, he launched his theatre career, and it's quite amazing that when he's sixteen, he travels to Ireland. He travels to Ireland and he, he starts his public his public performances there, apart from school plays in Ireland, uh, age 16. I gather he, he made uh, lifelong friends there in Ireland. So obviously with your Irish background, that makes him a special figure. Well, yes, I, 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 at one stage I was very interested in film, Jeff, and I, I wrote a few articles, academic articles about film, and, and I had talks with people. I was interested in film production, and I, I was really going to concentrate at one stage, and I, and I loved the medium. Uh, I lost interest in the last few years, or I changed direction, but I was very interested. And I was very interested in Orson Welles coming to Ireland age 16. So he arrives on a boat to Galway, He's kind of in, in my head. He's always he's always living a kind of artistic persona because he believes there's a reflexive relationship between art and life. And in my head, he's a kind of Yankee Doodle Dandy uh, going to, going to on the way to London because he does go on to London for a short time before he goes back to America. And he arrives on this boat, age sixteen, the west of Ireland, on a painting holiday, uh, which is quite remarkable, on his own. And he's going to travel around the west of Ireland. And I, the, the, the song Yankee Doodle Dandy is, is supposedly based on a tune about on, on the way to Galway, according to some. So there's, there's some little connection there. But he, 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 he wants to experience Irish culture. And he has in his head, of course, the, the Celtic revival that we've talked about. So figures like Yeats and that would be important as a kind of magnetic uh, figure in, in the culture. And of course... He, his father was a dandy. He was a bit of a dandy later on. And uh, Oscar Wilde was another figure associated with Dublin, George Bernard Shaw. So it made a lot of sense to go there. And, and there's, a, there's a very close connection between a lot of 
the American film industry at the time and Ireland. In fact, when he went in 1931 to Ireland, uh, Robert Flaherty, who had made Nanook of the North and that great documentary, was making a film in, in Galway, The Men of Ireland, which was a, a, famous, a famous documentary. And he arrives and he starts painting and travelling around and he decides to buy a donkey and cart. Apparently he's looking out a window and he sees this donkey and cart and he decides he's going to travel. There, there had been an Irish book called Marcel Bjorg Dove, My Little uh, Black Donkey, or Donkey, if you like, and uh, some people suggest that was uh, that influenced him. But it seemed he always had this uh, kind of gypsy element in, 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 his, in his outlook, a kind of cosmopolitan traveling outsider idea. So he starts traveling around the west of Ireland. So he would have traveled around where, where my family was and, and on the road by them looking at, at where he probably uh, had traveled. And he's, he's mixing with the people, seemed to have been well received from what he said. And I believe he was. He kind of seen himself as a kind of laughing boy and said that the, the world loves a kind of laughing, uh, the laughing person. Uh, and he he got to know people traveling around and uh, and found it breathtaking. And although it was archaic, archaic, he appreciated that and saw something intelligent and aristocratic in the in, in the people there. And uh, so he'd sleep under the cart or stay with farmers and try and sell his paintings. And he eventually gets to Dublin. He arrives up in Dublin. So I remember he's sixteen years of age. It's quite remarkable. Uh, and he very shortly goes to the Gate Theatre and he convinces them at the Gate Theatre that he's a, a successful uh, actor in the United States. Now, they, they could see through it, but it, it wasn't untrue that he had, he, was, he had this connection with the stage already. And there's a couple, a, a gay couple that, that ran, they're often referred to as the boys, that, that ran the Gate Theatre. Michael MacLeamore and Hilton Edwards. So they gave him his start age 16 and they remained friends uh, throughout his career. And they were involved in the film Otello, for example. And they're involved in, you, you can see them in a, a documentary he makes in 1978 called Filming Otello about, about the difficulties and challenges uh, of making that film. So he did form lifelong friends. And actually, I was in communication with a, an actress who who worked with them in in Dublin on their on their last uh, play uh, uh, recently. But he he acts uh, on the Dublin stage in, in a series of of works and gets a great deal of ex experience from their expressionistic uh, treatment of the medium. And also, Dublin has has a, a connection with Shakespeare. There had been also this interesting movement in relation to Shakespeare and the study of Shakespeare by people like Ernest Dowden, Ernest, uh, uh, Hester Dowden, uh, which explored the psychological and esoteric aspect of Shakespeare. So he did, he did also act in Macbeth there. And this connection with Shakespeare continued from his boyhood. It continued uh, in Dublin and he took it with him uh, for the rest of his life. And this this idea of a deeper element in Shakespeare, a deeper understanding of psychology, a deeper connection with the with the cosmos through Shakespeare had been explored in the nineteenth century. And there's books called Shakespeareism that, that that developed that. So Ireland was, was was very, very important. He later came back and made a short film which was uh, nominated uh, for, for an Oscar called uh, Return to Glenniscall which is a little ghost story, which, which he filmed with Hilton Edwards directed. And he, he would come back with Chimes at Midnight, a play based on Falstaff, which became a film which came out in 1965-66, which some people regard as, as a superior film as well. So he had a great connection with Ireland, and it was very important, a very important base for him before he took off in the United States. Going back to the point you made that uh, you had an early interest in film, and uh, so did I when I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin in 1967. I took a course in the history of film, and I was watching a, a film just about every day. And the interesting thing is that 
one of my fellow students in that undergraduate course was a man named Joseph McBride, who was a fanatic, a real fanatic about Citizen Kane. He owned his own celluloid copy of the film. McBride was sort of uh, very much the center of attention of this little course because of his devotion to Citizen Kane. I learned later that he actually met Wells and even uh, played in one of Wells' movies. He he played a character satirizing himself, a film critic named Mr. Pister, who was a uh, devotee of of Orson Welles. As, and it, the film... The Other Side of the Wind. The Other Side of the Wind, exactly, which was a, uh, a satire of Hollywood at, at the time. But uh, subsequently, McBride wrote two books about Orson Welles, and I gather he's largely responsible for resurrecting Welles' reputation that people, the conventional view at the time was that Wells uh, was a tragic figure who made an early brilliant film and his career declined ever since Citizen Kane. But McBride made a point of, of showing that he continued to innovate throughout the rest of his life. Uh, that's right. He's a, he's a very respected and distinguished authority on, on film uh, and uh, on Orson Welles. And as you said, he, he actually became an actor in that uh, in the other side of the wind. So he, he really knew what he was talking about. And he, he and I think he, he even appreciate chimes at midnight. That, that's where Orson Welles uh, makes a film in Spain based on 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 a stage play that he had done going back to early early work he had uh, worked on where he he focuses on Falstaff uh, as a as an important figure so he kind of he took Faust and he put a laugh in it and he gets Falstaff I think later on he moves a bit from from Satan to Santa if you if you like but Joseph McBride uh, I, I think is very fair and accurate in relation to his perception of the overall trajectory of Orson Welles. And he certainly appreciates the the work, the whole gestalt of the work, the total, again, symph symphonic element uh, to it. And I, I think he's right in that. And even his work on television is is, is underestimated. For, for example, he did in 1972 Future Shock, uh, which 50 years ago was talking about the issues we're talking about in relation to technology based on Alvin Toffler's work. So he, he, uh, an area that's forgotten about is, is this interest that Orson Welles had in relation to technology, in relation to bureaucracy, in relation to over-governance right through his life. He's a progressive uh, politically, but he had this concern about the growth of, of, of public power. But Joseph McBride... Uh, is is very fair in relation to his assessment, and, and I agree with him. And he he understands the power from Citizen Kane, which which is kind of indisputable for anyone that's interested in film and the innovation and there, the technique and and, and the magic. Uh, but through all the other work and through films that are not that wouldn't be kind of popular, like he made The Trial in 1962, and and he changes Kafka's book radically. But in, in, in his treatment of the trial, there is some deep philosophical thought about the nature of society. For example, he says, or the character says, that there's a great dirty game uh, going on which seeks to make us believe that the universe is meaningless and, and that it's absurd. And so he, he's, he's getting engaged in a critique of essentialism and whatever through the, through the medium of, of film. And this was one that, that was a particular example of a work that Wells had chosen himself to do, given the circumstances. So, uh, yeah, you were lucky to meet someone. And again, it's funny as well that I think he comes from Milwaukee. So he had that interest in the Midwest uh, as well as another figure that's associated with that area, of course, is Harry Houdini, who who, uh, who um, Wells met and learned tricks off as part of his real interest in magic. And of course, Houdini was interested in the afterlife and in communicating. He, he, people focus on his exposure of false me, uh, mediums, but 
That was because he really wanted to prove, he really wanted uh, good empirical evidence of, of, of the afterlife. And the, the element of fakery is another element. So uh, Wells makes this great documentary called uh, F for Fake in 1972. And this was about the idea of fakery. So people think that fake news is a, is a recent phenomenon. But he's explaining about the illusory nature of the society that we're living in and the, the necessity for skepticism through the medium uh, of film. So McBride understands his, his great interest in art. And if you study art history, and Wells had started off doing a bit of uh, in Chicago studying art as well, um, as well as the great experience he had at the Todd School and the great exploration. But throughout, throughout all his work, there is a reference back to the Renaissance, to the great, the great artists, to Carpaccio and Caravaggio, up to Tenebrism, uh, Chiascuro, different uses of light. Everywhere in his work, there's a reference to, to the tradition of art, and in particular to Renaissance art. So... If you come from an art history background, you can understand the references as well, or you get an extra dimension, as well as understanding the, the technical brilliance and uh, the versatility and the panache that he uses. So, uh, yeah, so it's interesting that you cross paths with that, uh, with, with him and with, uh, with Joseph, uh, as you were saying. And I, I too was very very interested and in london all the art houses would you know would play citizen kane and, and magnificent ambersons and a touch of evil uh, 1958 was was a film with with marlene uh, dietrich and these were films that were very very well regarded for their for their innovation and for their intrinsic art and another uh, he, he was very interested in music um, you, you mentioned that he he was regarded as a, as a genius figure. He was, he had a very high high IQ that people don't understand. He really was intelligent by any measure, if we want to measure or we believe in these things. And music was very important to him. Music was very important to his mother, and that sense of musicality informs his technique in in the in the whole of his work. So I, I agree with the with people like uh, Joseph McBride and his relation to his work. And that's in contrast to other views which regard him as a failure, which is uh, is quite remarkable. I think anyone that, that, that suggests that Orson Welles was a failure should put their C, their own CV up beside his own when they're, when they're making that assessment. Maybe it's not the precise word, but it was as if he was blacklisted by Hollywood at, at some point. Well, there's there's two elements to it. Um, he so, so uh, just again in context, he he starts off and uh, as we said, we moved through the theatre, moves on to the radio, innovates all along, uh, innovates in relation to context for African Americans, for example, in New York. He's interested in social issues, uh, does his stuff with War of the Worlds, moves into film. So he he, he was. As well as perform popular things like the shadow on radio, it was him that was the the, the shadow. So he's a very popular figure, very uh, a, a very artistic figure. And in 1946, there was an incident that became uh, came significant, and that was associated with a man called Isaac Woodard, who was uh, beaten horrifically by the police. And uh, Orson Welles took up this took up this case and read out affidavits on the radio and used the radio to challenge the police in this context. And he, he it did achieve a trial anyway, but he he focused on it. It wasn't, wasn't popular. People, it's hard for younger people to understand the context uh, that we're talking about in, in the South uh, in 1946 is where a returning soldier was taken off a bus and ended up being blinded. Uh, and it was a horrific case. And he promoted that case, and that was important in relation to a, a certain element turning against him. And he became blacklisted as a communist. He was very progressive and very left-wing, but he, he wasn't regarded as a, as a communist because he, his progressivism was based on the individual. It wasn't based on, on co collectivity. And he... Because he becomes blacklisted, uh, and he and he was by the FBI, and that 
he, as well as that, there were other dimensions associated with the inland revenue and taxation, etc. But he goes to, he decides to go to Europe uh, in, in 1947 and he spends a few years in in Italy. Now, Spain turns out to be his great love. I mean, he, he lives outside the United States for a long time. Spain is the country that he really loves and he, he's drawn uh, towards that. He always had an affection for Ireland. But in, in Italy, he continues his work and continues his own uh, projects. And also, there's an important point in this. They talk about the idiosyncrasy of idiosyncratic nature of his approach to film. But he was he was a great artist, and he was pointing to a difference in culture. For example, in in France... The rights, the economic rights associated with a film are the directors, they're not the producers. So there's a different emphasis. So he wanted this freedom. He, he believed that the director was the, the critical role. And this was, this was respected in Europe. And, and, and he, he engages in his projects in, in Italy. Uh, they may not have loved him as much as he, he loved historic Italy and Renaissance uh, Italy. But he, he does work on one of his major projects over a few years, and that was Othello. And that was the great work which involved Michael McLeamore and Hilton Edwards. And they they had been promised, or, or he believed he was going to get money early on, and he didn't get it. So in, in, in all of his life, he's, he's using his own money and putting his own money back into the, into the films. Uh, and he's striving for this independence. Now, Othello wouldn't be everyone's cup of tea, but it, it's a quite amazing film. And he did that documentary... In, in, in the 70s, where he's discussing the character. And, and they're, they're, they're engaging, as these actors do, in a deep analysis of the Shakespearean characters of who Othello was, who Desdemona was, who Iago was. And you can see what... Th- th- this is an important aspect in relation to the deeper elements of Shakespeare. There was this idea in the 19th century that Shakespeare opened you up to uh, the higher worlds and that Shakespeare was in some way connected to the esoteric domains. And I, I think that's, that's, that's quite true in relation to his conception and the psychology. So when we look at work that he did in, in, in Italy, like, uh, like Othello, we see that he's engaging in deeper themes. So Iago becomes really representative of some suspicious force in society itself. Desdemona is classically the Christ-like like figure. And he's, he's showing the danger of these deep emotions. And, and, and uh, on one point that comes true for me and on, on a deeper level, again, showing uh, the deeper elements that some people miss sometimes, that he has this critique of technology, which is there going back to 1942 and the magnificent Ambersons when when they're considering the the car and and the the, the influence of the automobile on American society and the Midwest and how it's going to change things. That's that's an undercurrent in the film, kind of consistent with 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 Lewis Mumford. If you look at the if you look at Othello, the film. There's a metaphor, a motif that comes true again and again, and he uses it very deliberately. It's the net, and he emphasizes this. He talks about this. The net is a, is a critical thing, and that represents in some ways something consistent with what he showed in the trial, this notion of the human individual being caught in structures, in technological structures as well, literally the net. But uh, there is that implication, and when you look at it in that, in that form, it's kind of it's, it's chilling. And he did other films like uh, Black Magic, where he's playing Cagliostro. And this is a kind of interest and in indicating the deeper interest he has in magic, in things like alchemy and mesmerism. And this is this was necessary and came from his study of magic, of illusionism, of stage magic, of, of uh, performance. And but he really he did have a, a, a deeper a, a deeper interest. So yes, to come back to your question, he was alienated and he felt alienated from the power in America. And there's there's always this suggestion: oh well, he just wasn't nice and he was hard to work with. But he saw himself as defending art and defending the artist, and he really believed in that. That wasn't just a position. And he put his money where he, his mouth is, and he stood up 
He had the courage of his convictions to stand up in a very hostile time uh, for individuals. So when he's standing for Isaac Woodard, he's standing for the individual. He's not talking about about everybody. He's talking about this individual and this story, which is important for him. He sees everything in, in terms of stories. And that's why he focused on the story of, of this man. And and when you do, people can could see the bigger issues. And it was important in the story of desegregation in the United States. So he, he is involved in, in the in the bigger issues because of his, his progressive approach. Well, today people are developing a renewed interest in the whole question of uh, UFOs, uh, aliens, extraterrestrials, space travel. And it's ironic that Wells uh, inadvertently, certainly unintentionally, had a negative impact on the study of these things because I think it was in 1954, the, um, the government sponsored a secret uh, commission, if I recall correctly, the Robertson panel, and they made a decision at that time that the government should begin debunking reports of UFO activity and minimizing it uh, because they were afraid of uh, the fear that was engendered uh, by Wells in his broadcast of the War of the Worlds, which apparently, because people thought that we really were being invaded by Mars, he portrayed Orson Welles, I mean, H.G. Wells' story, The War of the Worlds, as a news report and, and on the radio. So people thought it was happening in, in real time. And as a result, the phone lines back in 1938 got tied up. And the government was afraid that if if they were to uh, reveal to the public what they knew back in the 1950s about UFOs, it would cause a panic based on what had happened in 1938. Uh, that that's interesting. Uh, the what happened after 1938 was that organizations, particularly Rockefellers and that, began to fund research into the impact uh, on media and of media in these contexts. And uh, apparently, Hitler made a, a comment on the decadence of the West uh, after the, uh, the 1938 broadcast, but. Uh, that, that, whether their stated reason is related to that uh, is another is another question, and whether there is a causal relationship uh, between that. Um, hate, uh, Orson Welles uh, did continue to uh, to bring attention to issues like the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and he was open to all these issues, and he did work uh, with NASA. And even with NATO, on the, so he did work also with some of those uh, big organizations, although though I think he became less interested in them later on and a bit more suspicious. Uh, whether there is a, a, a pure causal connection is a, is a matter for debate, because, of course, they're going to utilize they're going to utilize this argumentation uh, in, in the context of whatever particular policy they have. There, there, there's always the, the danger, of course, that there's an overlap between experimental weapons that one's own government is developing and UFO experiences, and they don't want to draw attention to it. So, uh, yes, that, that that's a matter for, for historians to, uh, to work out. Fortunately, uh, it seems as if the government policy has changed finally, and, and the government is no longer in, in the business of debunking legitimate claims of UFO sightings and uh, contacts. Well, here we have the problem, and this is the problem that, uh, that Orson Welles would suggest. And it's in uh, F for Fake, where he says in the first hour, everything I say is true. And then, of course, it goes over an hour and you forget that, that, that after that, the promise doesn't hold. So the, the alternative reading uh, of that is that the, the government also can utilize the policy that, uh, that Orson Welles suggested in relation to this this hoax nature or the accidental nature and the fooling. So um, whether we can be more certain or not of the phenomenon is not necessarily answered by the uh, our, our confidence in the government. We, one would hope so, and we would hope that people that have been 
studying uh, these issues for a long uh, period of time will help us to interpret uh, and to separate the wheat from the chaff. But there's also the possibility, of course, uh, as we've talked about before, that uh, governments can utilise these fears uh, for their own purposes. Uh, and that, that's, that's, that's a subtext and well, uh, an obvious argument for people like George Orwell and that. So uh, I'm not sure that, uh, that, that, that he would or, or Orson Welles would be any more open to the government's uh, position on that. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was quite sceptical as well. He was sceptical of psychics in certain contexts, although he did, he did cold calling himself one time and he said that the strange thing is that you can begin to you can pretend things and you you can say to people that oh well you had a cut on your knee and 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 or you have a cut on your knee and everyone has a cut on their knee etc you can you can do that a cold reading i should say uh in the cold reading context he's skeptical but you can still cross over into a a, a boundary or across a boundary whereby you're you are actually uh, coming up with insights. Uh, he was sceptical of mediums, but he wasn't sceptical of, of spirits or the possibility uh, that there were things there. Uh, he, he, he did a program on Nostradamus, but he was sceptical about uh, Nostradamus and, and, and the interpretations of Nostradamus. So he has, like, like uh, your conversation with Ray Stanford about having a healthy balance, we have to always look at the evidence. And I think figures like him make us uh, be careful in relation to how we assess the evidence. And I think that's a that's a, a healthy approach. Well, especially in our current era, Orson Welles was aware of uh, misinformation and disinformation in, in his day. He died in 1985. But I think it's fair to say these days we are being flooded with it. So the importance of individuals to be able to sort through this morass of what are you supposed to believe is crucial today. Yes, and that's personified by uh, his interest in Othello and in, in Iago and this figure that can make uh, Othello murder the, the Christ-like figure Desdemona and, and he's, he's demonstrating how we can be man manipulated and they discuss this in the documentary about uh, with Michael McLearmore and Hilton Edwards what this motivation is and what is the nature of this evil and and uh, one of them suggests that it's just in his nature, that this is a force within nature, this manipulative element that's there. So he sees, he's engaging in this examination of, of the shadow in this context. And he also does that this in through his interest in Macbeth. And he makes, he makes a, as well as the stage version, versions that he did, he makes the film in 1948. And it's very, very interesting because Macbeth is a very dark, a uh, very dark play, uh, and the actors refer to it as the Scottish play. They don't use the term in many senses. And it's a very dark film, a uh, very interesting film. And he had an addition to that, which is, which is, is very interesting, which, which Shakespeare didn't have, into it. And he said not many people noticed this. He puts a holy man who says a prayer to St. Michael, and the prayer against evil. So this is the this is a quite interesting, the kind of exorcist prayer in the center of the film, because he did believe that there were these forces, uh, these forces were real, and in all these, he, he took evil very seriously. So uh, consistent with the Shakespearean context, in many senses, they're seeing the humans as puppets in a kind of cosmic battle. Uh, and these elements can't, they're not going to go away. There's always going to be an Iago force uh, in society which will create suspicion, which will create this doubt, which will manipulate people, which will manipulate otherwise honourable people and will lead to the destruction uh, of, of innocence. And in Macbeth, he's, he's kind of, he's, he's portraying those forces again in a very dark way, although he seeks to balance it with, I think, that, that, that holy man figure, which is, is, is quite interesting. So what they're doing by, the, by examining these themes over and over again, Hamlet, uh, Othello, Macbeth, uh, King Lear, Falstaff, is, is saying, well, there's something in this work, something classical about 
the nature of the human psyche, which will always manifest itself from us internally as an individual, from us socially and at a macro level, and that we must understand these. And that's why he goes on later to celebrate the kind of uh, the comic figure in a way of Falstaff, who is a very larger than life figure, who in some ways as he may have been Yankee Doodle, Doodle Dandley, he transforms himself into a Falstaffian figure. And Falstaff was a kind of hero for, for, for Wells. Now, he's not an obvious, he's not an obvious hero in, in the Shakespearean plays, but he takes Falstaff from different plays of Shakespeare and puts them together in a composite. And he admires Falstaff because Falstaff is not taken in by this talk about gaining honour through war and violence or power. And he's associated with Merry England. Uh, and, and this is a kind of a theme through the work of Oscar Wilde about the lost paradise that's, that's there, kind of looking back uh, to tradition and a kind of nostalgia. But it's a deeper, it's a deeper argument in Wells. He's saying that we're losing something. And this this movement in the technological society, we're moving away from a kind of human scale interaction. And Falstaff became, becomes a, 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 fig, a positive figure for, for him because Falstaff wants to enjoy himself and have a merry life. And he's not interested in this power, in this ruthless pursuit of power that King Hal is. You notice Hal is the same name that they use for the computer uh, in 2001 A Space Odyssey, although that, that HAL, uh, HAL 2000 is based on, on the initials IBM, the, 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 the uh, HI, uh, AB and LM. So, so uh, there's another interesting connection, connection there. But uh, he sees, he doesn't like this concentration of power. He doesn't like this, this pursuance of power. And he's happy to make Falstaff an unlikely hero by, by indicating that there's a nobility to not wanting power. And in many senses, although he may have been, uh, he may have been pursued by powerful forces in the United States and was now rejected, that same thing happened to Falstaff in relation to uh, King Henry, that he's saying, well, my love is for, for the people, for, for my fellow human beings, irrespective of, of race, irrespective of other, of other differences, that he emphasizes this cosmopolitan aspect, the human aspect again and again, whether in the story. And, and that's why he says, you have to understand these forces. You have to understand how jealousy works why jealousy works, for example, in relation to Othello. You have to understand what this pursuit of power, how deadly it can, can become, like in Macbeth. So these are recurrent things. They don't go away. And these are patterns that come true in contemporary politics, in contemporary society. It's the same thing, these emotions. So he's, there, he's asking us to look at those base emotions, to take them seriously, to look at the Faustian figure, to look at the, these uh, dark figures and to, to understand them because he did certainly see the West as going through a Faustian and phase. And, and that, that's the importance of those, of looking at, at, at those uh, human, psychological and psychic elements. I gather that the screenplay for Citizen Kane did win. The, the screenplay he wrote, uh, co-authored with Mankiewicz, as I recall, at the age of 25, won the screenplay for Best Picture. And, and the reason is not because of, you know, the wonderful cinematic techniques of the film, but the screenplay itself dealt with human emotions. It dealt with love and power seeking and uh, jealousy and, and these various issues were, were part of his mastery. Maybe uh, the greatest part of his genius was his ability to see into the human heart. Yes, um, and in particular he had this element in himself, so in, in many senses, when he starts off with the idea of Lucifer and bright Lucifer he's exploring Luciferian elements in himself and he's drawn towards the, the, the dark uh, characters uh, and what he sees, and one 
one motif that I think is important in relation to the magical element is that I believe that an important aspect of his technique is an understanding of alchemy in, in a spiritual context. So if you look at, you've talked about Mercury theatre, Mercury is a, a symbol of alchemy. The mirror is a motif which, which comes up in alchemy. We have the mirror of uh, alchemy, 1597. He's fascinated with the moon, the moon is very important in, in, in alchemy and in relation to hermeticism. And if you look at the filming of the trial, for example, he said he was looking out the window and he saw two moons. And it turns out that the second moon was a clock face on, on the train station. And he went to the train station and he used that in the film. And he says, I'm not going to explain why the moon is important to me. So, so he gives these little clues sometimes. And I believe it's because... He understood alchemy in a deep sense and applied it. So he takes the mercurial element, the quicksilver element, which is in himself, and you can see it in the technique, in the technique, in the filmography uh, that he uses in the style uh, of Citizen Kane and Magnificent Ambersons. He uses this quicksilver technique, dark, uh, shadow, uh, tenebrism, light changing, the camera moving, uh, moving the, the camera moving through through walls, through glass in a kind of magic spiritual way. He use, he takes the mercury element, uh, sometimes seen as a feminine uh, element, and he a watery element, watery metallic element, and he he brings in a sulfurous counterpoint again, like a, a musical fugue with two themes: the individual and something outside him, and the sulfurous element is usually represented by a kind of fiery figure, a Faustian figure, a, a Citizen Kane figure, a a figure which is dark. He, he was very interested in the heart of darkness. He was trying to get uh, Kurtz uh, off the ground. That, the film, that I suppose, was a precursor of Apocalypse Now later on in one of its uh, versions. But he he tries to represent these these sulfurous figures and uh, he, he brings them together in a triangle because the salt is the, the crystalline uh, form which balances them there's a triangle throughout his life whether with his his father and his guardian dr bernstein or with with hilton edwards and michael mcleam or it's a sense that he uses this as a structure of artistic technique and what he's saying is that uh, in the human psyche, there are all these forces that we have to understand. We have to understand the mercurial and the sulfurous in order to get the balance with, with, with the salt. And this is an idea that goes back to Jacob Burma and came through the Corpus Hermeticum and, and the Emerald Tablets. He had a deeper knowledge. I think this is an area which has been underexplored in relation to uh, the idea of his magic. People focus on the stage magic, the stage shows, the stage shows he did during the Second World War to entertain the troops, uh, cutting Rita Hayworth in half and, and all that, and later on his, his magic shows. But there's a, a deeper philosophical element which explains his technique and is, explains his understanding. So it's a, it's a deep understanding of what would make these characters work, what was so compelling. And in looking at that, he is demonstrating forces which operate on a higher level. He's indicating that if we don't really understand how to balance these forces, we're never going to, to be able to manage uh, ourselves socially. He was very, very interested in also world organization at a particular time, worryingly so from my perspective. But I think he changed when he began to meet some of these leaders from South America and, and that. He began to understand that the corporate influence on countries would make this global governance something different. And he, I think he got a bit colder on, on, on that. But yes, what he's saying is, and, and going back to Citizen Kane, is that there's a deep motivation. These figures represents something in us the pursuit of material materialism of power ultimately is futile that uh, you end up empty-handed in it and there are deeper there are deeper things although he was progressive and uh, he didn't he didn't like steiner he wasn't fond of agnostics but he wasn't really uh, atheistic he he often stresses faith as being important although he doesn't express a particular faith himself but he, he's saying that we have to be attached to something 
beyond ourselves. And art for him is something which is beyond ourselves. And that's why, uh, although he wasn't uh, he wasn't a Christian in, in a standard sense, when he's taken the example of the great work of art, he refers to Chart Cathedral in F for Fake as the great example of of, of of human art and explains that we don't know who the authors of that was. It was a collaborative work, like a film, I suppose. Uh, but he, he's again and again saying that we have to look and concentrate and think and reflect on emotions, our, our weaknesses and our ability to be manipulated. And that's why he has this endless fascination. And also from a psychological perspective, he has deep insights in relation to the nature of reality and human interaction with that. Well, I think the connection between Orson Welles and the Hermetic tradition is a very original idea uh, that you've come up with. I haven't seen that elsewhere. And in a way, it makes sense because the, the Mercury Theater, which he co-founded, uh, I mean, Mercury is simply the Roman name for the Greek god Hermes, who was associated with the Hermetic tradition. That's a, an important clue right there. He often gives other explanations. Uh, he gives another alternative or explanation for uh, why he used the word Mercury or why they use it with Hausmann. But he's not always he's not always being uh being upfront about that because he is great magicians don't reveal their 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 secret approaches and uh, great directors on that often have some simple formulae that help them to control the totality of situations around them and you see that for example in relation to ingredients in a film, once he found the people that were good, he, he was very loyal to them, to the actors or actresses. He, he used them again and again because he'd know how the ingredients ca can work. And interestingly, in relation to the language he used in relation to films, he said every film was an experiment. And I think that's very interesting. People gloss over that. He said every film was an experiment. And that's experiment is, is, is a kind of, alchemical idea well getting the different uh, different forces together and even if you look at they when when they're talking about the cinematic technique and he there's a lot of dissolves for example well the idea of of dissolving is another alchemical idea uh, and uh, so I, I believe that he he took deeper ideas and had them in his head in relation to the arrangement and so when we're thinking about the, the magic, we have to think about his interest in illusion, uh, illusionism and mentalism as well as another thing that he, he was interested in, the, 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 the ordinary work of people that work in, in that uh, domain. And that was the context of why he's interested in cold reading and why he's interested in, in uh, mesmerism and that. But I, I do think that uh, when you look at the clues, the, the little snippets that... that Ardent followed up, like uh, when, he, when he mentions the moon, when he's talking to Peter uh, Bogdan, uh, Bogdanovich, uh, that he, uh, he there's that, he's saying, well, why is he interested in the moon? The moon, in, in, in some of these senses, represents the mother as well. So you say, well, if he saw the moon and, and that led him, why did he go down? And, uh, why did he see the moon as such a significant pointer? And it may be that he associated the moon, for example, with, with literally with his mother or with that element uh, and believed that it was a sign. And this is the way that J Jacob Burma sees the world in relation to signs. So there is a kind of superstitious element in relation to things that he per pursues. He's, he's always an explorer uh, in, in his life, in his work. He does, he does the, the idea of exploration is very, very important. He traveled with his father around the world when, when he was a, a boy and his father was, was an alcoholic. He was looking after him more than the other way around. Uh, but he, he also made these kind of travel documentaries. He did them in Spain, for example, one of the Basque country uh, in, in the 50s. And we have this ex, ex, exploration idea as well, this investigation, this investigation of the unknown uh, and Again, through all that, there is a, a kind of overriding zeal to know something. But he, he wanted to know something, but in his 
effort to know things, to, to, to get to the bottom of these volatile emotions, again, which is an alchemical idea in many senses, that he, he is pursuing via technique, via a higher technique. People ignore how intelligent the man was, how well read he, he was, uh, how he would have read uh, things that were interested in him, how magicians read around uh, things associated with magic. He was, a, he was fascinated with the medieval era. He was fascinated with the, with the Renaissance era. He, he, was, he, he was very familiar with all the artistic context. He was very familiar, familiar with Italy. So he would have been familiar in particular with the uh, hermetic knowledge as it came true, as, as it came true, Italy that people like Francis Yates has, has written about uh, that era. He would have been very familiar, and he goes to Spain and he loves Spain, and uh, he wants his he wants to be buried there, uh, and his ashes were spread there, and he lived in Ronda in Andalusia, and he he loved Seville, and these are also places associated with magic in the Middle Ages and Kabbalah. So I, I don't think that's an accidental connection. I don't see necessarily much there. But when you're talking about Seville and Segovia and Toledo, uh, you're talking about the crucibles of connection between uh, Judaism, Jewish magic, Arabic magic, and, and Christian magic, and the interaction in a triangular uh, system uh, in those cities. So I think there is an extra element in the history of those contexts that, that would have informed him. He became very engrossed in the, the, the European context, in the European art context. And because of his interest in magic, he couldn't have been unaware of these things. And when we look for the clues, I think there is still a little story to be uh, to begin now, there's so many people have written about Orson Welles at this stage. I'm sure some will say oh, there's a, you know, the, 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 there is there is a book or somewhere, but I, I haven't seen it yet. But uh, there's a lot to be there's a lot to be explored, and I think as well as that, people are going to have to pay attention a bit more to what he was saying about the nature of technology, the nature of bureaucracy, the nature, for example sometimes in the United States they forget about the work that he did over in Europe and he did his first appearance in the 50s I think in in, in, in Britain they, they asked him what would he spend money on if he had you know unlimited amount of money and what he said was quite remarkable at the stage uh, if we think about how long ago it was he said he would get all the best constitutional lawyers together to begin to work against the defeat of civil liberties that is happening through the encroachment on the liberty of the individual. And, and that was a remarkable foresight. That was a deep, a deeply held belief that he had, a, a deeply uh, view that, that I respect about protecting, uh, protecting the individual. So um, what I think we have to, to think about is that maybe with some of these figures, because their worldview is so big that we think we see it, and we don't see it. We think we understand it, and we don't see it. And when we when we're laughing at him, sometimes the joke is is on us because he's he's making he's controlling what's happening. He's paying for the he's getting paid for these things, and he's a mastery of all those performance uh, media. Uh, he knows what fakery is, but he's not so sure that we know what those things are or can distinguish between reality and illusion. So I think there, there, despite the great scholarship that has been done on them, there are some themes in the overall symphony of his life that are relevant and that he is in that context of that meta-narrative that was sought to argue about, about a conflict between the individual and bureaucracy or industrialization, and it's, it's there throughout his work. Well, James Tunney, once again... A very stimulating conversation, and I know we could keep talking about Orson Welles for a long time during the discussion. There are many, many little points I want to uh, follow up on, but I think this is a very good overview of the key elements of, of his life. So, uh, is are there any thoughts you'd like to say in conclusion? Uh, the last point that I, I would emphasize is, and why I have a lot of respect for him is that when he set out on his journey to Ireland, age 16, engaging with people, 
He's demonstrating a lifelong interest in the individual. And in that, what's very important to him is the story. He is a storyteller. This is a thing that was respected in Ireland. Uh, one of the reasons he would have been attracted to Ireland. And everything is about the story. He was always interested in the story. And the reason is because uh, the story is critical to our lives. And it's something that we tell each other. And it's something about how we explain the world to each other. And something about how we understand each other. And some of the great films that he didn't make, uh, he worked on Don Quixote. He didn't do The Heart of Darkness or he didn't finish it. Uh, but the most interesting thing that he didn't do, in my view, was, surprisingly, his life of Christ. He wanted to do it, which would, in many senses, be the greatest story. He wanted to set it in a modern context. He communicated with, with, with Christian leaders of all denominations. And he was very serious about this. And that could have been very, very interesting. But... In all these situations, he the same as his interest in particular individuals that were discriminated against or suffered abuse from different races, uh, it didn't matter. He focused on the story. He focused on the individual experience. He, he cut away from general identities. He focused on the individual behind the story. So there's an individual telling story and there's an individual who gives the story. And because of his his kind of Merlin-esque uh, approach, again, consistent with C.S. Lewis and those people that follow, followed in the, the critique of, of tech, this, this, this figure that, that, that appears to us, he's saying that we really have to listen to each other's story. We have to be open to different stories, strange stories, stories that are uh, of different things, that the world is a lot stranger th th than we know, and uh, as, as was mentioned in Hamlet. So, so what I, I like about him is that humanity, and he saw the threats to that humanity from an over-technologicalization uh, of society. So I have great respect for him for that, and I think that the, the, the sh there is interest in scholarship there yet to be done on those themes that he gets credit and that we listen to him because some of these figures are too big to put in a little compartment and they're certainly not figures to be dismissed and not figures to be regarded as failures in any sense. It's, it's, it's a failure of our own imagination if we, if we can't see that he was a great artist that contributed to, to our life and sought to warn us about uh, some of the forces in our own personality that can manifest on a, on a higher level. So thank you very much. Uh, once again, uh, Jeff, for that. Thank you. Well, thank you for an amazing contribution, our 41st interview. And each time we speak, James, I'm uh, just awed by the depth of your knowledge and even more so the depth of your insights. It's a real pleasure to be with you. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. It's because of the viewers and the listeners that we're here. The inaugural issue of the New Thinking Aloud magazine was just released on March 1st. You can download a free PDF copy from the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website.